to uh, be continuing in the book of Judges. Um, nothing uh, says Thanksgiving and Advent and Christmas like the story we're going to read this morning as we uh, see um, the gruesome death of Sisera. So hope you're excited uh, this morning. Um, as we do uh, continue. We're going to be in chapters 4 and 5 of, of Judges um, as we continue to see the cycle that we've started to see the last couple of weeks um, in the book of Judges, right? This, this cycle of the Israelites turning away from God, turning to other things, and what does he do? He gives them over to an oppressor, and at some point they cry out, and what does God do? He comes and he rescues them. Last week we saw in Uh, An unlikely judge, an unlikely rescuer, right? A guy who was maimed or disabled somehow in his right arm, and yet God used used him. We're going to skip largely right by a whole nother judge that we read about in in verse 31, chapter 3. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. I'm sure Shamgar is probably your favorite judge. That is all we know about him. Um, You just read it. Um, The interesting thing, he's an unlikely judge too. He was likely, from the little bit we can learn there, as being the son of Anath, he's likely a Canaanite. So he's not even an Israelite, and yet somehow he saved Israel. It's amazing. This morning we're going to see another unlikely warrior step in to uh, deal the final blow um, to one of Israel's oppressors, and it's going to again be someone who's not an Israelite, and it's even more oddly in the the text, it's going to be a woman, it seems. So, well, let's dive in this morning. We're going to do this. We're going to kind of work our way through the text as we go. I'm not going to read it all, uh, but I would like to, let's pray uh, before we begin to do that. So, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We we thank you that your word um, feeds your people. Um, And We pray that you would feed us uh, this morning, uh, that we would, in a sense, feast on your word, uh, that you would use it in our lives to mold us and to make us more and more into the image of your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been thinking through, you know, we, we talked just a moment ago about these, the cycle that we see in the judges that, that Israel keeps going through. I was reminded of, and, and today's going to be a lot of old references, I think, um, of the movie Money Pit. Some of you probably have seen it, that, that Tom Hanks classic movie that, um, well, not exactly a classic of Tom Hanks, I guess, but he and his wife, they, um, they're looking for a house and, and, and they find this house. It's actually a mansion. And it's one of those times where it's like a distress sale, you know, and, and, and the people who are selling it, they have this great story of why they're having to sell this mansion so cheap, right? And it just, everything looks perfect. Everything is just perfect in this place, and so they buy it. And immediately after they buy it, what happens? Everything everything starts falling apart. The, the door comes off its hinges. The front stairs just collapse. The bathtub just like falls through the ceiling. I mean, over the period of the movie, I mean, just more and more stuff just falls apart. The, 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 the house is just decaying, falling one piece after another after another. And as we look at Israel in the book of Judges, we, we see something very similar, don't we? Israel is just like falling apart. It's, they, they keep doing, you know, it's just more and more, and we, we see it as we start reading in Judges chapter 4, and the people of Israel, again, did what was evil 
in the side of the Lord after Ehud died. They, they continue. Things just continue to fall apart. They fall apart even more and more. And so what did the Lord do? The Lord, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. The Israelites, they're following in the same pattern that we've already seen. They again turn away from God. And so God gives them over to an oppressor. And to understand how bad things are, as we read Judges 4, where we're primarily going to be this morning, there's also Judges 5. And Judges 5 is a retelling of the story of Judges 4, but put to music. It's a song. And when we read there, as we read how bad things are in verse 6 of chapter 5, in the days of Shamgar, that's, oh, Shamgar, he, he comes back up. Uh, Shamgar seems to be a t- contemporary of Deborah, who we're going to get to in a moment. Son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways, this is describing the days. This is how bad things had gotten. This is how, how far things had decayed. The highways were abandoned. Villager, travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, and then Deborah speaks. I, Deborah, arose as the mother in Israel. What were the Israelites doing as we continue to read? When, when new gods were chosen, then war was at the gates. The oppressors came to the gates. And where was Israel? Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? We, we see how bad things have really gotten. The, people don't even want to go out in the streets. Okay, that, that's how bad things have, have decayed as Israel has turned again away from God. And now this new oppressor, Jabin, the king of Canaan, is coming in. Now, if you're incredibly literate in Scripture, you may remember that there's another Jabin um, in Joshua. Joshua chapter 11, there's another Jabin of the Canaanites. And Joshua, back in Joshua's day, in chapter 11 of Joshua, Jabin was, was defeated. And the whole kingdom, you know, his whole kingdom was dispersed. He, he was gone. He was wiped out. And now here we are, probably a little over 100 years later, and suddenly Jabin, the king of Canaanites, is back. What's going on here? You know? Um, think of it as this. Think of it as Jabin. It's, it's, it's like a dynasty, okay? A, a, a kingly dynasty. And, and evidently in Joshua's day, his family wasn't completely wiped out. Some of them must have escaped. And, and what has happened in the ensuing days but, and years, but they returned, okay? The, the Jabin family returned. And they came back and they, they rebuilt their kingdom. And, and this is part of the problem, Right? We, we've talked about this as, in the book of Judges. Is, is Israel was supposed to wipe out all those people. They were supposed to keep them out of the land, right? And part of the problem of the book of Judges is that they have failed to do so. They've failed to keep the people out. And so what happens? Jabin re-arises because they failed to do what they were supposed to do. Jabin re-arises and what does he do? He begins to oppress them. He begins to oppress them in difficult and terrible ways. They're cruelly treated, we're told, for 20 years. And then finally, verse 3, what are we told? They cried out for help. Here they are. They've ignored God. They've gone their own way. God's given them over to the oppressor, and they cry out to God for help. And what does God do? What does God do to these people who have gotten themselves in this mess? We're going to see this morning, he comes in again to rescue them. 
It's amazing how he, he does it over and over and over again, how incredibly patient he is with them. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Here we, we have Deborah. And, and she's a unique judge. Now you might say her uniqueness is that she's a woman, and I, I guess so. She's the only female uh, judge that we see in the book of Judges. But not only that, she's also a prophetess. Okay? Uh, she... Deborah is, is like in a whole different class when it comes to our, our judges in the book of Judges. And in fact, as we read through it, we don't really see anything negative about her. Most of the judges, as we're going to go through, there's always negative things about them. They, they, they aren't always very good judges, okay? They, they struggle to be good judges. They make poor choices as judges. And we can't really say anything bad about Deborah. Now, a lot of people, we like to speculate on why Deborah. Why, why does a woman suddenly come out in the text? And we, maybe you've heard it before. We say things like, well, she arose because the, the, the men, they just weren't standing up. And, and they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. So God rose up a woman, okay, because the men weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And I don't think our text doesn't really say that. It doesn't tell us to, to draw that conclusion. And not to mention, think of all the other weak Men that we see throughout Scripture and all the other weak men that we see or we're going to see in the book of Judges. It gets far worse, okay? It's going to go far, far worse and far more opportunities. I think what we see here is just a positive picture of, of women in Scripture, a positive uh, picture of women and their abilities, their abilities to lead and lead well. And um, it's a blessing to us that we find this in an unlikely place. You know, we think Judges, we think the Old Testament, Yet we see a positive view here of women. We need to be careful not to make more of it um, than is here before us, except that Deborah is, in a sense, to be uh, celebrated here, a very positive uh, woman. And, and what did the people do in her day? Is They came to her, the people of Israel came up to her for judgment, we read. Now, what does this mean? They came up to her for judgment. Now, we, we kind of have a picture of like this long line of people waiting to see Deborah you know, for, for her to decide their, their issues, whatever they are. And she may have done that, but I don't think that's what our text is telling us here. What we see here is instead the people of Israel came up to her, okay? Now, the whole of Israel weren't, weren't able to come up to her at once, but the picture is like some of the leaders of Israel come to Deborah, and what they're saying to her is, Deborah, you're, you're God's prophet. What is God going to do about this? We've been suffering for 20 years. What? What, what, is, what is Yahweh going to do about our situation? And so I think that's what happen, is happening as the people come up to her for judgment. So what does she do? Verse 6. She sent and she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So what does she do? She summons Barak. He's a, he's a warrior. Remember, Deborah, she's a different judge. She doesn't go to the war field the same way some of our other judges do. She's not the actual warrior out on the field that we're going to see her go in a minute. So she summons Barak, and, and she, well, our text, as I just read it, there's a question here, right? And so we're left kind of wondering, did, did 
had God already approached Barak and told him, I want you to go and do this? You, you see how she's asking it as a question, saying, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? And so it sounds like that there's that possibility, but we don't know that for sure. The, the text isn't quite clear. It could just be that, that Deborah is saying, Barak, God's telling you right now to go. Okay? Regardless, that's the point. Barak, you're called to go. I want you to go, and God is going to give Sisera, the commander of, of the army of Jabin, he's going to give him into your hand. You're going to defeat him. Okay? So he gives this incredible promise. She gives this incredible promise uh, to Barak. But, but what, what is Barak's response, verse 8? Now, we're usually pretty hard on Barak. You hear what he says? He says this to Deborah, if you'll go with me, I will go, but if, if you won't go with me, I will not go. Is Barak here, is he having a moment of a lack of faith? Is he a scaredy cat at this point? Is, is, is that what we see here? You know, God's prophet has just told him, go, and I'm going to give you victory. And Barak says, well, I can't go alone. Okay, we, we do see here, I think, a sense of fear. We do see here that his faith is not yet perfected. There's a lacking here. He, he, he's not able to be just confident in God's word that he's heard to him, that he's heard. And so he asked for Deborah to go with him. But at the same time we say that, some, same time we want to say that, that there's something lacking in his faith, there's some wisdom in what he's doing, right? But by taking Deborah with him, what he's saying is, I want God's word to go with me. You're, you're, you're God's prophet. I want God's word to go with me as I go to the battlefield. I, I want God to go with me. And we need to remember, Barak is actually celebrated for his faith. Did you know that? He actually, and Deborah doesn't, but he shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 in that hall of fame of faith chapter. Barak is celebrated for his faith. So there's something of a strength of his faith, of what he does. And what he does is actually very different than what the other Israelites do. And how many of the other tribes respond. And we learn about this in that song of chapter 5. Listen to this, starting at verse 8. Um, or starting at verse 6, sorry. She sent, uh, wait, I'm completely lost, aren't I? Verse 15, there we go. Um, Among the clans of Reuben, uh, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Rumen, there was a great searchings of heart. Gilead said, beyond the Jordan, and Dan said, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, stained by his landings. You see what's going on? What are all these other tribes that just listed? They're all like, oh, should we go? Should we go help? I don't know. We're kind of busy today. Their faith is lacking. They don't go to the field. So as we think of Barak, and, and even as we, we want to look at his faith and say, yeah, there's some lackings there, it's not as though he had no faith. Okay, he does respond. He does go. But because of some lackings in his faith, we hear the response from Deborah. She says in verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will, tell, will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up 
with him. So he goes, she goes with him, but he's not going to get the glory. He's not going to get to take Sisera out. And in fact, that promise that a woman is going to take Sisera out, that becomes a promise, okay? That, that becomes a promise um, and a prophecy that I think is going to come, it comes back to Barak at the end, as we'll see. As Barak sees this prophecy uh, come to fruition um, in the story. And so as we see Barak, I want us to understand this. It's not that he has no faith. Okay? He has faith. But it's a faith that's not full. Okay? I think you and I, we can probably relate to that quite a bit, right? A faith that maybe is somewhat like that, that father um, in Jesus' day who says to Jesus, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Okay? We can relate to that, right? But at the same time, if, if that's our approach to God, we need to understand that there's something lacking in us. That our, our faith isn't yet complete. It's not quite where God wants us to be. Barak should have just responded and gone. Okay? It's not that he didn't have any faith. But his faith wasn't yet completed and full. And I think sometimes our responses uh, mirrors that in many ways. So, everything's set up. They're going to battle. Then verse 11. It's really weird. Read with me. Now, Heber, the, the Kenite, um, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hohab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Y- you read that, and you're like, what in the world? You know, Deborah and Barak, they're just going out to the battlefield. And then suddenly, here comes these Kenites and Heber, the Kenites. What in the world? Where's this coming from? It's kind of like, I don't know, you know, like if I'm reading a good novel. And maybe you've done this before. Like, you're reading a novel and, and it's good and like it's action-packed and you're excited. You, and you, you, you get to the end of a chapter and, you, you know, it's leaving you on a little bit of a cliffhanger. And you're wanting to see what happens next. And then you turn the page and it suddenly starts telling you about completely new characters. And and you even get to the end of that chapter and it's like, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, of course, you find out in the end like that's really important and they become important characters and those kind of things. But it's like it suddenly enters in and you're like, what in the world is going on here? That's what we have right here. What we have is think of God, in a sense, in the story, uh, playing a game of chess, if you will. He's, he's putting all of his pieces into the right place. He's getting everything set up. This is him at work, through his providence, setting up the situation because this tribe's going to come back in in just a few minutes, as we're going to see. But then immediately, verse 12, we switch back to the battle. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, iron, and all the men who were with him, from Horesh, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot. He fled away on foot. Barak pursued the chariots. And the army of Horesh Hagoyim and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. And not a man was left. 
victory. Victory. This incredible, this battle that you would think the Israelites should never win, they won. They were going up against 900, in our context, tanks. Okay, that, that, that's the equivalent in that day. Th- these chariots weren't small little things. They would have multiple guys on the chariot. Okay, they, they were, you do not want to go up if you're on foot against a chariot, just like you don't want to go up on foot um, against a tank, right? And that's what it was in, in that day. But, but we read, what, what do we read in verse 15? And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. Now, now, some of you may have a slightly different translation there of that. May say something like, and the Lord confused um, Sisera's soldiers. Now, either of those are, are, are accurate and helpful. They're, they're both true and equally true. The confused one actually helps us to understand that there's more going on behind this routed language than we read. Because we don't know how, right? We don't understand the context. But when we flip over to that song in chapter 5, we actually learn a little bit more of that context. Verse 19. The kings came and they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanek by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver from heaven. The stars fought. And from their courses they fought against Sisera. We, we see what the, the skies fighting against Sisera. And what happens? The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. What happens? These tanks of the day, which seemed like they were to such great advantage, what happens? The rains start falling, the, the waters start rising, and suddenly these chariots are caught up in mud. Suddenly the advantage that they gave Sisera's advantage, the, 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 the advantage that the Israelites could never defeat is suddenly completely taken away as they're stopped up in the mud, the chariots swiped away as God is at work. It's amazing. What we should see here is this beautiful picture and what's trying to be painted by the author of Judges is this incredible picture of how God rescued his people. In fact, verse 15 is the center point of this story. Like you can structure it all out and what is the center of this story? The the point that, that the story works towards and that works away from is that verse and the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots. God did it. God came in and he rescued his people. Now, the story isn't quite over. As we read a moment ago, Sisera fled on foot. All of his army, all of his soldiers were were taken out, but for Sisera. And and as I was thinking about Sisera running away, I was reminded of an episode of Seinfeld. Um, Many of you, you you know George Costanza maybe in that. George is like the, the consummate character that is all for himself. You know, it's all about George. George is all for himself. And, and there's this, th- this episode, he, he's, he's at this kid's birthday party. And he smells smoke, okay? And he said, fire, you know, he, he senses that there's fire. And so what does he do? He starts panicking. And he says, everybody, I think I smell uh, a fire. There's smoke back there. Fire, get out of here. And he starts running. He starts running for the door. He pushes the clown down to the floor. He passes a lady in a walker, pushes her down. Pushes a couple of kids down, all on his way out the door as he's screaming, get out of my way. Okay? A few minutes later, they're downstairs, you know, the, with, the, with the firefighters and all there. And some of the people, they come up to confront him, confront George, and say, there he is. That's the guy. That's the coward that left us there to die. And what does George respond with? He says, I was trying to lead the way. 
We needed a leader, someone to lead us to safety. And then, of course, the crowd, the, the, the people, they, they say, yeah, but you yelled, get out of my way. And then he says, well, that's because as the leader, if I die, then all hope is lost. Who would lead? The clown? Instead of castigating me, you should be thanking me. I led you to safety. It's, it, it's incredible when you think about it, right? Would anybody really think that way? I don't know, but it just so reminds me of Cicero in our passage. Cicero is this big, mighty general commander of the army, right? He's the big bad wolf of the story. He's big and he's bad, but whenever the defeat begins to come, what happens? He runs away. He runs away. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Canaanite. Here we have the story coming back, and we see why that verse was in there. God was setting the stage, getting the, the Canaanites in the right place. So that when Sisera fled, he would run right through their camp. And so now he's there, and and evidently his king had made treaty with them. They turned against the Israelites. And so he flees into the camp, believing that here is a place where he is going to find safety. Now, to make this story come alive a little bit for us, or help us to understand it a little bit more. So here's this big bad general running away, okay, And then what we're about to hear, I want you to hear it as though it's coming from the voice of a mother. And that's kind of the way it's written. I think that that J.L., as she comes out to help, she's coming out as like mom to come help her little boy. Okay, that's that's the way it sounds. That's the way it reads. And J.L. came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. Okay, read it maybe with a little mom's voice. So he turned aside. Um, to her tent, and she covered him up with a rug. She tucked him in, okay? She tucked him in, hid him under the covers so that nobody could find him, okay? And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. He's asking mama for a little drink of water. Can, you know, I'm, I'm thirsty for my run. Will you come help me? And she says, no, let me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you something. I'm going to give you milk. It's even better for you. She opened the skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him again. And then he says to her, will you stand by the tent? Stand at the opening. If any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. Here here we have this consummate scaredy cat. If you think for a moment that Barak was kind of scared of going into battle, it, it, it in no way matches what we see here with Sisera. Okay? With how scared and terrified he is. Now, as we move in on in our text, last week we saw a pretty gruesome story, okay? As Peter called it, it's kind of like the yo mama joke of, uh, of, the, of the book of Judges. And it was pretty gruesome. This week, I think in some ways, the, what happens next is even more gruesome. Last week, so it was kind of hidden behind a bunch of bathroom humor, okay? Potty humor, middle school type humor. This week, it's just plain violent, as we read it. Now, as I do this, I, I want to say this. We, this is important as we look at Scripture in general. We, we don't need to and shouldn't be more violent than Scripture is, right? For the same reason as we talk about this, we, we shouldn't be less. Scripture, you know, the, the author could have chosen to kind of hide these things behind other words, but it chooses to bring it out very boldly as we're going to see. Verse 21, 
So mama, who's been taking care of her little boy, or he thinks she's taking care of him, J.L., the wife of Haber, she took a tent peg. This would have been a pretty good-sized thing. It's not like the, you know, you go buy a tent at Walmart and the little plastic-y kind of stake. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a big old tent peg, whether it had been metal or, or wood, I don't know, but it's, it's big, okay? And she took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him. She goes over quietly. She don't want to disturb him. He's asleep. And she drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. That's pretty gruesome, isn't it? Why is that in Scripture? Why, why, can't can we just say that she killed him while he was sleeping? Is Scripture trying to highlight violence here for us? Is it saying, oh, this is how you get rid of an oppressive leader? This is what you should do? I think really what, what may help us here as we try to answer this question is actually put it in context. Okay? Let's put it in context of what's going on. And, and part of that context is actually reading part of the song that's in the next chapter, chapter 5. Now, I had thought this week about um, calling up Josh and asking him to put part of um, Judges 5 to a tune so that we could sing it together this morning. Um, but I didn't do that. I didn't want to put him on his Thanksgiving week and stuff. So I'm not going to sing it for you, but just imagine for a moment these words put to a tune, okay? Verse 24. Most blessed women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. Here she is taking care of him. She sent her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he sank. There he fell dead. You just imagine that to a tune. The Israelites used to sing this song. We hear that, and it's back to that question, like, why? Why would you sing of such violence, right? And I think it's there that we need to be reminded of what's really going on. The Israelites had been cruelly treated by the Canaanites for some 20 years. Cicero was, was one of the, the, the people at the head of that, of their cruel and oppressive treatment, okay? And what we have here at, at this moment, the, the big bad wolf, if you will, has finally been taken out. The oppressor ha, has been vanquished, and, and what do the people do? They begin to celebrate, and they begin to sing that they have been redeemed in such a way that they have been rescued. You see, they're praising, and they're thanking their great God. um, Barak quickly finds that that prophecy has come true, right? Verse 22, Barak, he'd been pursuing Sisera. He'd been running after him, thinking maybe he's going to get the victory. He's going to get to take Sisera out. Maybe that prophecy is not going to come true. And Jael comes out, and she says, come here. Let me show you something. So he went into the tent. 
And there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. And so that moment, Brock sees that the prophecy has come true. Deborah's words have, have come true. He doesn't get the glory. And it's here that we get to see where the, the real glory points in this story. Okay? The different stories of, of judges, they're all similar, but then they're all different. This one's interesting in that who gets the glory as you read through Judges 4? Deborah only makes it halfway through our passage this morning. And then she just kind of fades into the background after verse 14. She just kind of fades into the background. We don't hear from her anymore. Barak, he, 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 he wins a battle, but he, he doesn't get the, the, the guy in the end. Jael does get the guy, but she's not even an Israelite, right? And she does get praised in the song. We, we just read it just a moment ago. But, but it's here that I think we see that as odd as this story is, it's actually a good Thanksgiving story for us, maybe. It's not the typical one. You know, we, we're, we're used to Thanksgivings being about Norman Rockwell, right? That, that's what a good Thanksgiving looks like. For the Israelites, the story is a story of great Thanksgiving. Uh, such great Thanksgiving that it, it results in them singing that they can't help but sing. And who is it that they sing to? They, they sing to the real hero. Verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan before the people of their Israel. Who, who did it? God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, who before had routed Sisera's troops. God did. He is the one who is at work. He is the hero of this story. The hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And at the very end of chapter 5, we read, And the land had rest for 40 years. You see, you, you get to this story, that all these twists and turns in this story of, of, of how... Jabin, king of the Canaanites, how the Canaanites are going to get defeated, how God's going to get them out of the mess. And we're wondering in the story, who's going to be the deliverer in this story? You you may have seen or or, or seen it redone actually in movies like Catch Me If You Can or something like that, that that old game show to tell the truth. In that old game show, they would have three people um, up front who were all claiming to be somebody, to be claimed to be somebody who did something famous or, or whatever, and so they're all answering questions from the contestants, and the contestants are voting on who they think is really the person, right? And at the end of, uh, of that game show, the host would say, well, the real, whatever their name is, please stand up. I think in a sense what we see in our passage this morning is the question being asked, will the real deliverer please stand up? And it's not Deborah, as wonderful of a judge and a prophet as she is. She's not the deliverer. It's not Barak. It's not Jael. They they all do great things, and God uses them in great and mighty ways. But the real deliverer comes forward, the one who subdued the people. You see, the story is one for the Israelites of great thanksgiving. 
That's why it leads to that song in, in Judges chapter 5. The, the people couldn't help but sing of what God had done for them, of what their deliverer had done for them in this, in defeating their enemies. And as I'm reminded of, of the people that, that God uses in this story, of the defeat, I'm, I'm reminded at the same time of how different their deliverance is from the one that we have in Jesus Christ. You see, each of these um, characters who's going out and doing the delivering, they, they get to do things to other people. The, the other people, the, the, the bad people suffer in the story, right? And the amazing thing, the incredible thing about our deliverer is that he is the one who suffers. Okay? It's not the Canaanites who suffer or their bad, evil uh, commander that suffers. It's Jesus that suffers. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laced the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, unlike those other deliverers, unlike all the judges, in fact, that we're going to see, he Except maybe Samson, I guess. He, he gives his very own life. He gives of, him very, of himself. He's the one who suffers so that we might be delivered. You see, I hope you get it. The, the Israelites, they sang. They sang and they, they remembered this story because they remembered how their great God delivered them after 20 years of suffering, 20 years of, of being oppressed, they knew how bad things had gotten. And so when they come out on the other side of it, they can't help but sing. My question for us this morning is that as we're reminded of Christ, as we're reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the way he has delivered us, the battle that he went to for you and I, does it cause you to sing? Does it? Does it cause you to sing? Or is it just, oh yeah, I know that story. I've heard it so many times. And it's just like vanilla, you know, it's, you know, it's nice, but it's not great. No, we need to go deeper. We need to understand what we've really been delivered from. We need to understand how, how great our salvation is, and if we understand, if you and I understand how great our salvation is, we'll sing. We should sing. And so that's what I want us to do here in a minute as we sing. Let's sing. Let's sing to our great God and Savior and our Redeemer, the one to whom we are truly thankful thankful for all that he has done for us, how he has rescued us from not just 20 years of oppression, but he has rescued us from eternal death and brought us into eternal life. I pray that it causes all of us to sing this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, you give us, we have some very difficult uh, 
stories in your word, words, uh, stories that sometimes we read and we wonder how and why is this here. I pray that this morning we have been appropriately pointed to our Savior. That we have been appropriately appointed to you, our great Redeemer God, who didn't just redeem the Israelites back then from the hands of Jabin and Sisera, but that you have redeemed us. You have redeemed us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have saved and rescued us from sin and death. Would you help us to truly believe it, to truly know and understand the gravity of it, and would it cause us to sing this day, we pray. In the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.